Hey, listen, if you're doing good this morning, say, yes, I am. I'm glad you're here. We have a very good friend of mine and special guest to City Church that's going to be sharing scripture and teaching this morning. Before I introduce Dick Foth, Foth to you, though, I'd like Mark Boyd to stand. Mark, go ahead and stand real quick. Everyone say, good morning, Mark. Mark is a uh, very unique individual where he works. His specialty is Africa. He's involved with some of the U.S. government officials, and he travels with them around the world and ministers to kings and presidents of African countries. And so he drove Dick Foth down from Washington, D.C. to be here with us this morning. And when you have a guy of that caliber carrying your bags, it's worth announcing him to the church family. So, Mark, great to have you. Actually, I know his brother. Um, we were involved in some academic work together. So, Mark, it's great to have you. Um, Dick Foth is an individual I met almost 30 years ago when I was serving in campus ministry at Princeton University. Dick had uh, just resigned a college presidency in California, and he was heading up into the Washington, D.C. area in order to serve with congressmen and ambassadors and senators and to kind of bring the gospel on Capitol Hill with a group called The Fellowship. And so I got to know him then. Um, he was nice enough to serve as one of my doctoral advisors for my doctoral project. And so Dick and I have been great friends. Um, you know, more importantly to me is that you've loved my son. And I'll tell you, you want to get to the heart of a parent, love their kids. How many of you know that that's true? Mm -hmm. And so Dick Foth, for whatever odd reason, has uh, loved my son. So Dick, come on out and share. <laughs> Thank you, dude. I'll take that table when I get a chance. Good. Good morning. I've been around the sun a number of times. And in that process, you find out that perspective is what makes life work a lot of time. One of the key reasons I follow Jesus is that he gives me a perspective, apart, quite apart from a new life, but he gives me a perspective that I've never had. For example, I was just sitting down there by Mark, and it's a very different perspective than up here. And sometimes our perspective, we're too close, so we can't see the, or sometimes, it's too far away. Sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit for what we do see or what we know. Ruth and I have four children. They're not children anymore. They're all adults. And our youngest, a boy, we have three girls and a boy, so he had four mothers. But our, our, our boy, Chris, just turned 43. And um, when he was four, he walked into the front room of our home in Santa Cruz, California, and said, Dad, I want you to help me with my numbers. I said, okay, what do you want to do? He said, I want to add to 10. I said, okay, what's well, 2 plus 3? And he thought his, his 10 digits were his limits, so he looked at his hands. He said, 5. I said, what's 5 plus 2? Look at his hands. 7. I said, what's 7 plus 2? He looked at his hands. He said, 9. I said, what's 10 plus 2? Looked at his hands. He said, I can't tell you that. I said, how come? He said, because I'd have to have 12 fingers to tell you that. <laughs> I said, my kid, the rocket scientist, you know, he, he didn't know that he knew. And sometimes our perspectives are that way. And this morning, I'd like to share some thoughts on perspective. I've called it, look again, what do you see? And it's from Acts, the sixth chapter. Acts, the sixth chapter. If you have your Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen. Acts, the sixth chapter is this fascinating thing. The early church, the church that was birthed when Jesus left and the Spirit came, uh, exploded. I mean, like 3,000 people in one day. It was just this massive upheaval. And when you have quick growth, it's messy. You get caught up in stuff. And in this particular passage, the messiness includes immigration issues, ethnic clashes, and caring for marginalized, hungry people. So that's that cluster of things. That's a lot of stuff to deal with. And this is in the early church. This isn't like now. This is then. Here's how the text reads. 
In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. So the twelve, those are the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, word of God, in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn the responsibility over to them, we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. That's That's pretty unusual right there. This proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So here we are in Jerusalem, international city, people from all over the Mediterranean basin, all over that part of the world, and not an insignificant number of widows. You say, why why would that be? Well, uh, we'll come to that in a moment. But there are two groups of widows. There are the Hebrew-speaking widows, who who today would be called sabras. They're native-born. And then you have widows that come from other places who are Jewish, but over the years they've been scattered across that part of the world. Uh, You can go to almost any place in the world and find a Jewish community today. Years ago, when we did a church plant at the University of Illinois, we used to take students to Mexico at Christmas and Easter, and I'll I'll never forget being in Monterey, Mexico, walking into a furniture store and meeting a Jewish fellow by the name of Pepe Gomez. And I'm saying, you know, that's like not a Jewish name, but he was a Jewish guy. There's this word diaspora, which means scattered. And back hundreds of years before Jesus, when the Assyrians came down, they took Jewish people out and scattered and intermarried with them. Babylonians came over, and then over the years, they've traveled. And so they're scattered all over the world. And when, when, when the diaspora come back, they have a challenge. Now, maybe some of them had come for the feast at Pentecost, and all heaven broke loose at Pentecost, and they said, I think we'll hang around. I don't know when this exactly occurs relative to the feast of Pentecost, But what you have is people with different languages, but the same ethnicities and the same faith. Well, the leaders are busy, huge growth, and so people in the process sort of get neglected, and the result is murmuring, grumbling. You remember back when the the Israelites came out of Egypt, when they were rescued, if you will, by God, and Moses leads them out. They don't get too far out of town and they're murmuring and complaining because the food, you know, people tend to complain about the food and they're saying, you know, I, if I could just have a bowl of onion soup like when we were back in Egypt, that would be good. The problem with murmuring is that it's no small matter and it tends to feed on itself and murmuring doesn't seek solutions. Leaders seek solutions. And so widows are of, are, are of particular concern Historically, in Jewish tradition, widows were taken care of. The Torah and prophets all talk about having justice or doing justice for widows. James, in the New Testament, says true religion, taking care of widows and orphans and keeping yourself unpolluted from the world. And my question is, why? Well, the loss of a husband in that culture at that time was economic disaster for a woman, and she was in a very dangerous place of exploitation, exploitation possibly. Well, there's, there's a tradition of food help, help for folks with food in that part of the world, but it was probably in the hands of the Hebrew-speaking folks, and these were Greek-speaking widows, and anyway, the 12 called the community together. And you have to understand one other reason why they were widows. Younger women were married to older men. They die, and guys, even in our time, pretty much we're gonna go first. That's, you know, there are 14 million people who have lost their spouses in the United States, and there are 11 million widows out of the 14, there's just three million guys. And so that's what happened here, but more so because younger married older. So the 12 called the community together, and they say this, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we've already named those men. 
And it says, choose men who are well attested, who are known. They are, people speak well of them. The core word for that idea, well attested, is the word from which we get martyr. People witnessed about them that they were quality people. Stephen, who's, who's the head waiter on tables in this group apparently, in the next chapter, in chapter seven, he dies. So, you know, it's these people who were asked to wait on tables were authentic, full of the spirit, full of wisdom, the decision pleases the whole group. The apostles pray and lay their hands on them. And in that time frame, two major things are solved, potential issues in the church, injustice and disunity. Those two things are spoken to in this one action of choosing these seven guys. And the result is that the word of God spread. So here's my question. Why do you need to be full of the spirit to wait on tables? I mean, I... I've been waited on by a lot of folks that I don't, I, I'm not sure where they were theologically, I didn't ask them or didn't, but they were nice people. Why do you need to be full of the Spirit? And, and we get in this dialogue a lot of times in church. Are we waiting on God or waiting on tables? Is this the sacred or the secular or whatever? Well, I think it's different expressions of the same heart. When the great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and soul, your whole being, and, love, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, is there a chance that when you're loving your neighbor, you could be loving God? I, I just heard my friend Peter pay me a great compliment when I walked up here. He said that for whatever reasons, I took a liking to his boy. And he likes me because I like his boy. Well, his boy's not hard to like. Well, he's way too smart. But other than that, I, but I, want, I wonder if that's how God feels. When he sees us liking each other, he says, yes. Ruth and I were talking the other day and said, isn't it great that our, our children are adults and they still like us? And then we paused and said, what's even better is that they seem to like each other. God in heaven has to cheer when he sees you liking each other. It's of the same kind. When you love God and love each other, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's of the same kind. It's interesting here that they said, choose these people to serve tables, to organize the serving of tables. The same verb, diakoneo is the Greek word that said, don't come and ask me for how to conjugate or go deeper. That's pretty much it right there. It's the same verb used for serving the word, the ministry of the word, and the ministry of tables. Same word. And it's not a title. They're not saying, why don't we choose seven deacons? I know in your Bible sometimes it says deacons were chosen, but it's not a title. It's not a noun. It's a verb. Now, I like titles. I get it. You know, titles are good. I was a lead pastor. I liked that title. Pastor was good. I used to go on the campus at the U of I there in Champaign-Urbana in Illinois, and I was young. I was like 26 years old, and I'd go on campus, and you know, our parishioners were like 19. When you're 19, you can have a lead pastor who's 26, because you think he's pretty much gone anyway, just an old dude, and at 26, he's gone. But I'd be on the quad, and I'd wave at me, and they'd say, hi, PF. They didn't call me pastor like in front of their friends, but they called me PF. So, hi, PF, how are you? I like that title. And then I became a college president, and I looked all through the scriptures for president, and I couldn't find it, and so I told the students, the closest I can come here is emperor. And so <laughs> I like had a whole dorm of guys calling me emperor foes. I loved, that was good. And then I went to Washington, D.C. just to be with people. I didn't have a role. I didn't have an office. I didn't have a staff. My office was in my car because I went to where the people were. Because when you wait on tables, you go to where the people are. And I, after three years in D.C., hanging out with folks who had titles, and they had a lot big staffs, and I was feeling a little insecure. Well, I was feeling a lot insecure because I didn't have any title on my card. And so it was the National Prayer Breakfast. It was a big event. First week in February every year, 3,500 people, 150 nations coming. And on the evening meal, because they have four meal events, the evening meal this year, I think it was 1996, 
they'd asked Billy Graham to come and speak. Now, Billy wasn't going to preach. He was just going to share anecdotes and be interviewed by a United States senator. Well, the senator was a friend of mine from childhood, and so they asked me, will you host Senator Husitz and he'll host Billy Graham? So it's sort of this tiered thing. So we're sitting at a table, Ruth and I, and here are the other folks at the table. You've got the outgoing chaplain of the Senate, Richard Halverson. You've got the incoming chaplain of the Senate, Dr. Lloyd John Ogilvie. You've got Billy Graham, the man. You've got the senator, a fellow who's high in the economic system of Japan is sitting next to me. Then there's me, then there's Ruth, my wife, and then a prime minister and his wife from an island nation. Now, Ruth is from Modesto, California. It's a little rural area. And I'm from Oakland, California. I'm just grateful to be alive. And, 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 and we're way over our depth. We're out of our depth in this group. And um, I start talking to the Japanese gentleman. And pretty soon, he hands me his card. Now, those of you who know Asia a bit know that all the titles are on the card. And it's, it's a formal exchange in that part of the world. You, you, you read the titles, you literally know how low to bow. So, and, and I'm feeling insecure as all get out. You know, all of us are insecure, just in different places, different times. You could say amen there if you want, but I'm just telling you, I'm just saying that's, you know, all of us are dumb just in different places. That's how it works. And so I give him my card, or excuse me, he gives me his card, and I'm saying, oh, good grief. So I give him my card, and all it says is Richard Foth, Falls Church, Virginia. And this Japanese gentleman looks at the card. He goes, oh. I said, what's the matter, Koji? Is there a problem? He said, oh, no problem, Dick. But in my country, only person who had no title on card is emperor. I said, yes. <laughs> so I like titles, but right here, this is not a title, okay? This is a function. They're given a function. Their function is to deke. People say, how do we select deacons for like a big congregation? How do we do? We only have seven slots. How do we? I say, well, go find people who are deaking, who are serving, who care for you. And then choose them for a couple of years or have a long term as those. But the other people who are deaking, they're not in the office, but they still deke. Are you with me here? This is how it works. So this verb for service characterizes the function they do. So I say, okay, so why do you need wisdom to wait on tables? What's that about? Well, this particular situation is it needs wise solutions. I love the story. After the Second World War, there were millions of orphans in Europe. Poland itself had almost, almost a million orphans. I think we have a picture here of just one of the one of the groups of orphans and uh, they would put them to bed at night these little guys and they they were half starved they you know huge problems with food and they'd give them milk and bread and have a dinner and they'd wake up in the middle of the night and they'd be crying and they were trying to figure out why did they wake up having night terrors and all of that when they'd already been fed and a therapist in the group, I understand, said, why don't we give each of them a piece of bread to hold because their concern is they'll wake up in the morning and there won't be any food. So they need the assurance that there's more where that came from. And so they started giving the little kids pieces of bread to hold when they went to bed. And pretty soon they calmed down. That's what you call a wise solution. But the reason that wisdom is needed here is that they don't need deacons who have good eye-hand coordination so they don't spill the matzo balls or the soup or whatever it is. That's not what they, what they need is wisdom with people because what you have is you're dealing with hungry, marginalized, female, immigrants, same religion, different languages. The early believers didn't have a feeding problem. The early believers had a seeing problem. Look again. What do you see? You know, even good people can get crosswise when we're overlooked. It says that the Greek widows were overlooked, and that's what started the murmuring and the complaining. Why did they get overlooked? Well, they were the wrong category. We live in categories. We are in categories. Think about what I just said. 
how I said it. We're dealing with hungry, marginalized, female, immigrants, same faith, different culture. We think in categories. That's how we process things. That's how we deal with each other. Those are the kids. We're the parents. <clears throat> I'm in the bald group. See, I'm in the bald group. I'm in the white guy bald group. Well, not exactly white. I'm sort of pink. And it's really not just the pink bald group guy. I'm the Scotch, Irish, Dutch, English, and German pink bald group guy. And I'm in the dad group. And I'm in the grandpa group. And I'm, in the, I'm, I'm a Californian. So I'm a left coast guy. I'm a, so, you know, all the, that's how we deal with each other. The problem is, and categories aren't wrong unless I use them to keep people there. Oh, you know how those people are, but you know what they're like. The Spirit wants to overwhelm our categories. The Spirit wants to overwhelm our categories. Stephen, the head waiter in the group here, the next chapter he's killed because he's in the wrong category. He's one of those Jesus followers. And the, and the guy who held the coats so Stephen could be killed was a young guy named Saul who was in the Pharisee category. And he describes himself later in the text as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin. He, category, he says, these are my creds right here. And I toss it all over to follow this Jesus. So on the road to Damascus, the guy who helps kill Stephen ends up being one of his guys, if you will. And years later, when he's writing to a church in Galatia, what is now Turkey, this is what Paul writes. There is neither Greek nor Jew, Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, because the Spirit of Jesus takes down the barriers, takes down the categories. So that's why you need wise and tested men full of the Spirit. You say, but categories make life simpler. That's true. But sometimes categories can make life opposite of what Jesus is about. In this case, there's only a slight difference. They're all widows, they're all Jewish, they're, they just speak different languages. But being overlooked, being unseen, I've heard people say, you know, I walked into the room and nobody even saw me. Walking into receptions on Capitol Hill where you're not known, where nobody says, hi, because those aren't about you, they're about this person over here. Those are like some of the most awkward moments in the world. No one likes to be overlooked. Some of you folks remember being on the playground when you would choose up sides at recess for baseball. And here you are, all you guys are all lined up, and he says, Harry, I'll take you in. It's always the big guy who's way ahead physically. He's choosing the team. He's the captain, and Harry will take you, and Fred will take you, and um, no, uh, Jose will take you. And, we, and nobody likes to be skipped or overlooked or neglected. The problem with categories is that it makes overlooking a habit. Can I say that again? The problem with categorization or categorizing people is that it makes or it allows overlooking to become reflex or habit. I pray this prayer relatively often about me. Lord, save me from hardening of the categories. Save me from hardening of the categories, because the, the Spirit, the Spirit recognizes categories. It says it right here, but he deals individually. When you read Jesus in the Gospels, he has, I think it's like 39 encounters with people, conversations. What's so cool about that is that no two of those conversations are alike. No two of those conversations are alike. When you start seeing people like Jesus sees them, you see them as immortal. You say, I'm, I'm looking around and I see young people and I see old people and I see people who have kids and I see people who you know, come from this background or that background. But when Jesus looks, if I understand this book at all, when he looks at us, he sees us as immortal. C.S. Lewis captures it in this wonderful phrase from his talk, 
the weight of glory, which he gave you during the Second World War at one of the colleges at Oxford or Cambridge. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. They go away. Geopolitical boundaries, all that goes away. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Whichever way we treat that person turns them one way or another, he is suggesting. When we see people as built in God's image, it changes how we deal with them. They don't get overlooked in the food line. They don't get overlooked when we are talking to people. You know, I love the little exchange up here when that little person who is up here, who's, you know, dad's talking about these heavy things and she's you know, doing this. And then Pastor Pete says, give me five. And all of a sudden, She's real. I love that story that Anne Ortland tells in her book, Children Are Wet Cement. Mom takes little boy into a diner or into some restaurant, and the waitress comes and says, yes, young man, what will you have? He said, I'll have a hot dog, fries, and a Coke. And the mom says, and I'll have a chicken salad uh, with vinaigrette dressing and uh, water and... Uh, he will have a veggie burger and, you know, some other things. And the waitress looks at her and says, you'll have the chicken salad, the vinaigrette dressing, and he will have hot dog fries and a Coke. And turns and walks away, and the little kid turns to his mom and says, hey, mom, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> Jesus says, you're real. Your requests I'll respond to when you ask for wisdom, because you need wisdom to serve. When you ask for wisdom, I won't call you an idiot. That's what it says in the first chapter of James. I love that part. You know, I say, God, I need wisdom. He doesn't look at me and say, no, you're so full of stupid, I can't give you. There's no, no place for wisdom there, you know. This is the God who says, let me tell you how I see you. I see you as immortal, an everlasting being, and you'll do this earth thing for a while, then your body will fall off, and then you'll get this new one, and we'll just be together forever. Let me give you just a thought. The next time somebody asks you, so what do you think about those people? How do you feel about that group? The next time somebody asks you that, I have a suggestion for a response. Just say, which one? Which one? I'm not like all bald pink guys from Scotch, Irish, Dutch, English, and German background from the left coast. I'm a, new, I'm a, I'm a unique bald pink guy, Scotch, Irish, Dutch, English, and German from the left coast. There's only one of me, thank God. You know, but when somebody says, well, you know how those people are, say, really? Like, which one of those people are you talking about? Because that's how God sees you. He acknowledges the category, but he sees you as a person. Let me close with this. A few weeks ago, I was sent a book, galley proofs by a friend from a friend on the West Coast. I met him when he was 20 years old. He's now in his mid-50s father of three kids, one of whom just graduated from college, and he's the president of a Christian university in L.A. area called Biola University. His name is Barry Corey, Ph.D. from Boston College. But I knew his father before I knew him. His father was this gentle man from southern New England, uh, not a big man, a rather smallish man with a wonderful radio voice, one of those voices like that who is the most, probably the, one of the most hospitable people I've ever, ever met. And I don't mean hospitable, hospitable because he fixes punch and cookies. I mean hospitable because he welcomes you into his space. 
And Barry has just finished a book that will come out by Tyndale in March. It's called Love Kindness. And he learned from his father how to see people. His father's thesis for his life, his life verse, was uh, Matthew 10, 40, that says, he who receives me, excuse me, he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. So when you make a friend, let's say I'm just Joe, don't know what's going on out here, just trying to do the best I can, and you befriend me, and you're a Jesus person. You're a Jesus follower. When I get you as a friend and we hang out at Starbucks or the local coffee place, I not only get you, but I get the Spirit and Jesus and the Father all at one shot. That's what the verse said. He who receives you receives me, receives the one who sent me. But Hugh, Hugh Corey, Barry's dad, saw this a little different way. He said, I want, I want in my life to learn how to be receivable. Not to be received, so people have to make a party, well, here comes the man. But to, rece- to be receivable, to take down the walls, to take down the categories, so that it makes it easy for people to receive me if they want to. So in his book, Barry tells of an exchange with his dad. Barry had gone on a Fulbright to Bangladesh to study education in the villages. And I just want to read you just a few paragraphs. I was in Bangladesh for several months. My father visited me for a few days. I was in my late 20s, ponytailed and single. Each morning before breakfast, he and I stepped out onto the streets of Dhaka, one of the world's poorest and most densely populated city. On our walk, we passed half-constructed homes framed by bamboo scaffolding. Dumpsters were permanent, not portable made of brick and rummaged through simultaneously by dogs, children, and widows. On our walk, there were open drains on each side of the street reeking of human waste, and rickshaw peddlers dodged us as we walked our morning route. My dad was particularly interested in what I was seeing and observing. This was nothing new, but one morning our walk seemed different, more contemplative, As we turned the first corner, he shared with me that five decades after he began his pilgrimage of faith, there was so much about God's wisdom and ways that he still did not know. He held no seminary degree, never completed college, but as we walked, Hugh Corey, the follower of God, began to share with me what his life in Christ had taught him. He spoke in his native King James language. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Finally, he camped on the next sentence, the point of his recitation. He that receiveth you receiveth me. He that receiveth me receiveth the one who sent me. Not sure my father grasped the full context of what Jesus was saying in that verse, but I'm certain he did understand what Jesus modeled in the Gospels, a receivable life. This I do know. I've gone back to that moment Many times, that God-ordained moment when I would receive a cherished gift on the, on the fetid streets of Bangladesh, as from the local mosque, the Muslims were calling Muslims to prayer. The bedrock of Hugh Corey's faith was passed on to me, my father's son. Two days after he spoke, I witnessed his demonstration of the profound power of the receivable life. Shamsul was a poor Bangladeshi man of 21 who rented a bed in the servants' quarters behind the house where I lived spoke little English, and like many others, left his family in their village to find work in Dhaka. I noticed my father begin to build a relationship with Shamsul in the few days since he arrived, something honestly I had not done. For my father, this was nothing new. All my life, I saw him show love to school teachers, wayfarers, disgraced pastors, dentists, tailors, attorneys, and on and on. But it was not until after our walk earlier in the week when I saw this idea at work, whoever receives you receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Then it happened, the receivable moment occurred between Hugh Corey and Shamsul, when the words of Christ expressed themselves in radical kindness. I was transfixed as this 68-year-old Canadian preacher reached out his hands in a moment of outpouring compassion, as that, and as I'd witnessed so many times before, held another person's face in his grip. I was willing to bet on what was coming next, and I would have won. 
Shamsul, my friend, the Canadian pastor said, I love you. Whereupon Shamsul pulled my father's face to his and kissed him on top of the head. One day in Bangladesh, my father told me what kindness looks like, receivability. And a few days later, he showed me. Serving has good eyes. People who are receivable when they serve touch people's lives. Serving has kind eyes. When kindness shows up, barriers drop, no one gets overlooked. When I see people like Jesus sees them, I become receivable. Lord, fill me with your spirit and wisdom. Save me from being a category guy, from being an overlooker. By your spirit, give me a baptism of clear seeing and a serving heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did not just see me in a category and say there's no hope for folks. Thank you that you don't operate by category, but by singles, individuals. Thank you that in this moment, by your spirit, you choose to touch some hearts for the one here who has lived his whole life or her whole life by category. I pray that even in this moment, you will start unraveling that framework and birth in them a fresh spirit that is your spirit. I know how that feels. I know what that's like. Thank you for the privilege of being in this place together with your children. And even as we go into the highways and byways around Charlottesville, may we be receivable people with kind eyes. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. One of the uh, things that shows you have seen someone and what they have done one of the things that denotes that is when you say thank you. Can we give a thank you applause? He just pulled the microphone through his shirt. Can we give a thank you applause to Dick Foth for that message? one time after a teaching similar to this one, I went up to the pastor. I had just started in ministry. And uh, I went up to the pastor and I said, man, I loved your message. He said, well, what'd you like about it? And I said the main theme and of his teaching. And he said, well, I'm glad you remember that. I said, thank you. And he said, but the real point is to live it. Don't just thank me, live it. How many of you are open to living without categories? Wasn't that an awesome teaching? Let's pray together as we close. By the way, as we conclude this prayer, if you have special needs in your life, we've got people that will be here to stand with you, to pray with you, and to pray for you. We don't want you to exit this auditorium not being prayed for and prayed with if you know you need prayer. So as we conclude this prayer, this dismissal prayer, there's people from our prayer team that will be moving forward as I pray. And if you would like to some, have someone pray with you and pray for you, they'll be here to do that. So please don't exit again. If you know you need somebody to pray with you and for you, please make sure that you come forward. These individuals are prepared to pray with you and for you. Here's the other thing, is that as they pray for you, 
they're going to have a card that allows them to take information if you would like continued prayer. If you would like others to pray with you and for you beyond this service, if you have a need and some way our church can move into action to meet your need. And so they'll have a card that um, they're going to speak to you about. Well, let's conclude our time in prayer together. If you would like to stay for prayer and worship, please feel free to do that. But let's pray. God, I want to thank you that a text that's 2,000 years old is still so relevant today. To think that as your church was born, that people were overlooked. That people needed eyes to see the needs of those around them. God, I pray that the City Church family would be like that, that we would have the eyes of Christ, that we would see people as immortal. Lord, I pray that you would bless us with the ability to move beyond categories by the power of your Spirit. Lord, help us to be this church in the city of Charlottesville. God, thank you for the relevancy of this scripture. I pray that we would not just enjoy it. I pray that we would not just be able to recount it, but I pray that we would live it. So Holy Spirit, come upon us. Seal us with your presence so that as we exit this auditorium, we would go with the power to see things and people differently. Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. Lord, I pray now over those individuals that will come forward for prayer. I pray as they take that physical step towards you that you will meet them, that you will lift the burdens of their hearts and lives, and that you will provide for them in ways that only you can. Jesus, thank you for who you are to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And now may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let's worship together as we go.
this morning we'd love for you to stay and to worship with us you can also feel free to come forward for prayer or dismiss yourself at any time
To the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring. And when you walk into the room, every heart starts burning, and nothing matters more than just to sit here at your feet and worship you. starts to vanish every hopeless situation ceases to exist and when you walk into the room the dead begin to rise cause there is Our hearts are yours, we want you. 